Well, good morning, Southwinds, and I, I want to encourage you, if you feel like saying something, say it loud. you got to say it through a mask, and uh, also just be aware that I can't tell if you like what I'm saying or not, so um, all I see is your eyes, so smile with your eyes, and uh, maybe wave if you think something funny by, by chance, I don't know. It's going to be an interesting time, right? And, uh, you know, for the first seven months, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we are gathering for worship here inside our worship center. And that is an incredible thing. And I am so glad to be here. How about you? Um, and I do want to say hello to our online Southwinds family, both who are uh, streaming, uh, live streaming across to the refinery uh, on the other side of our campus. And then those of you who are joining us online we're so glad you're with us. We look forward to seeing you again uh, as soon as possible. We had another great time of worship outdoors at 8 a.m. And just in case you're wondering, uh, as long as we're able to do this, as long as the weather permits, we're going to be gathering outdoors. There's plenty of room for everyone to come. Just remember to bring your own chairs. And uh, then just to keep you know, everybody informed, each uh, Monday evening... Uh, you'll be able to start reserving your seats uh, for the, the next Sunday. And I'll just say this, just to kind of keep it out there. If you don't have the Southwinds app, uh, you can get it by texting Southwinds 233777, where you'll get all the information, connect cards, sermon outlines, uh, links for life groups, uh, places to request prayer, uh, places to do online giving, and a whole lot more. Well, today we are continuing our series through the first letter of Peter, and this series is called Hope for Exiles, and we will this morning be in 1 Peter 2, verses 11 through 17. And I would encourage you, if you would, to open your Bible. Uh, if you have a paper copy of the Bible, you can do that. If you have an electronic copy of the Bible, you can get that open and ready. And this passage is beginning a brand new section of this letter. And up to this point, as we've been studying... Peter has been focusing on our identity, our identity as elect exiles. And he has shown us that our identity is based on the living hope that we have in the gospel. And he says we're exiles and because of that we should live holy lives because God is holy. Because of that we should live uh, lives of sincere brotherly love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we do this in the context of not belonging in our world. We're, we're rejected by the culture we live in, but at the same time we face rejection, we know that we have incredible worth in God's sight. Do you remember what we talked about last week? This is in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. And Peter tells us, and this is true of every one of you who knows the Lord, we're a chosen race. Say chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. And we're God's people. God's people. So we have this incredible worth. So simultaneously loved and chosen by God while being rejected by the world. Now what's about to happen, what starts in this verse that we're in today, beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, and going all the way through chapter 4, verse 11, uh, Peter shifts his focus. And now he's going to begin talking about how elect exiles live in relationship to the outside culture. Up to this point, it's been more focused on who we are and how we relate to one another in the church. But now it moves out to how we relate to people outside the, the church. And he's going to describe for us what I'm going to call the exile lifestyle. And the exile lifestyle does not mean that we retreat from the pagan world. The exile lifestyle does not mean that we rage against the pagan world. 
Instead, the exile lifestyle means that we should live among the pagan world and we should live honorable lives that are marked by good deeds. Now, in the weeks that are ahead of us, we're going to see Peter take that principle and address three specific difficult relationships that Christ's followers face in, uh, as they are living in this world. This week, in verses 13 to 17, we're going to see what it means to live under the authority of unjust rulers and government. Uh, next week, we'll look at what it means to live under the control of an unjust master. And then the third week, it's going to be about being married to an imperfect person. That's chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And I'll just be honest with you. These, these are the kind of passages, when a pastor comes to these, you get real tempted just to like, oh, let me just move on and go to something else. Because these are not uh, easy passages to deal with. But how much more in this season in which we're living right now in 2020? I mean, what an incredibly difficult time to try to deal with these subjects. You know, and think about it. All of us, uh, we know what it means to try to live under a government that many times seems to be trying to just make things worse, not better. That oftentimes seems aligned with certain people and against other people. In other words, unjust. And, and all of us who are married understand what it means to be married to an imperfect person. But then you take this one in the middle, this relationship we read about masters and household servants. And some translations say slaves. And in 2020 America, we're like, what's up with that? What is this about? Well, what you need to know before we get into the specifics is Peter is teaching us an incredibly important principle, an incredibly relevant principle through these relationships. And even though his cultural context is very different from ours, the principle is still important to us today. And here's what it is. He's going to use these three relationships to apply one single principle. It's at the heart of his message. Here it is. You can write this down. God calls Christ followers to endure unjust suffering with patience and joy. God calls Christ followers to endure unjust suffering with patience and joy. And Peter's going to make it clear God does not ignore our suffering. God will give us justice one day. But while we're here living as exiles, he uses our suffering as part of his redemptive purposes on earth. Now, maybe you've already noticed if you're kind of scanning ahead, there's a key phrase that you need to pay attention to the next few weeks. And it, it is a translation of one Greek word. The Greek word is pronounced hupotasso. And the, 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 the phrase translated by the ESV is be subject. Be subject. And if you like seeing what Greek looks like, there's the word there for you to look at. Be subject. Other translations render this word submit. And, and Peter is going to tell us to be subject in the opening phrase of verse 13. And then in the opening phrase of verse 18. And then again in chapter 3 verse 1. And the key idea is that God is calling all Christ followers to submit. And we submit in different ways in different relationships. And this is a crucial part of living as an exile. So how do we live the exile lifestyle? Here's the central idea today and for the next few weeks. And you're going to keep this in mind. God calls all exiles to live a beautiful life. A beautiful life. That's what we're going to see in verses 11 and 12. So why don't you follow along uh, in your copy of God's word as I read those verses. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, I'm going to explain what I mean by a beautiful life in a moment. But first, I want you to understand this is the structure, the flow of what Peter's doing here. These two verses are telling us in general, like overarching terms, uh, how we live in a culture as exiles, a culture that often rejects us. These two verses are like the introduction to the next couple of chapters, from here all the way to chapter 4, verse 11. And they give us these overarching principles, and then Peter's going to tell us, well, here's how this works out in specific examples practically in different parts of life. We're going to see the first one of these examples in a few moments. But first, Peter says, this is how you live in a culture where you are in exile. Remember your identity, what he's been talking about, who you are as an elect exile, Remember that you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people on whom he has showered mercy. And when you keep this in mind, Peter says, I have two commands for you. The first is in verse 11. If you're taking notes, Peter says, we must fight aggressively. We fight aggressively. But beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So we're fighting against what? We're fighting not against the culture outside of us. We're fighting against those things internally that wage war against our soul. And he calls them passions of the flesh. Now that word passion is often translated desire. That's what some of your translations will have it as. It's actually a compound word in Greek where you have two words put together. Uh, one part of the word means over, the other part means desire. And so you, you can think of it as an over-desire or a, a maybe a hyper-desire in our terms today. And a desire can be good or bad. Uh, but when it becomes ultimate, it becomes an enemy. And it becomes an enemy that wages war against your soul. And so Peter is saying, you go after those ultimate desires that wage war against your soul. These things that become all-consuming in our lives, that begin to dominate and, and often take over. You see, when our desires grow strong, sinful desires, they can rob us of what God has for us. Not only here, but also out into eternity. Uh, for example, Peter's not saying that we... We should abstain from things that we find pleasurable just because they're pleasurable. For example, we can talk about food. Food is pleasurable, right? Everybody say amen. We like to eat food. But would you agree that food can become a passion and it can become an over-desire? In some people's lives, it, 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 it turns into a kind of gluttony. And it's kind of an interesting thing to think about today, right? We have a thing about food in our culture. Would you agree? I mean, we're, we're into food. And one of the ways we know this is uh, we take pictures of our food all the time. And some of us post pictures of our food on the internet, right? And here's what I want you to think about, okay? I'm not judging. Um, Not really. Because I actually took a picture of my food, you know, one day this week, a couple days ago. But the truth of the matter is I repented that I didn't put it on the internet. I actually deleted it after I did it because I knew I was going to be talking about it on Sunday. (laughs) But here's what I want to ask you. Do you realize that if you just go back 20 years in time, maybe not even 20 years, and you told people, I'm taking pictures of my food, they would go, what? Do you realize how strange that would have been? I'm taking a picture of my food. I'm having granola for breakfast, you know. 
I'm taking a picture of my food. That would have been so weird not very long ago. Am I right? Yeah. Well, because food has become a huge thing. It is an over-desire, generally speaking, in our culture. Now, money is another example, and money is a neutral thing in itself. We're actually commanded in the Bible to work and provide, but when money becomes a love, it becomes an idol, it becomes an over-desire, and it's not a good thing. In fact, the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. And then sex. Sex is God's idea. He calls it good. Anyone want to say amen? And I notice there's mostly male voices that I'm hearing right now. I don't know what that means. You can figure it out. But, uh, but when it becomes a God that controls us, when we disobey God's commands and it becomes stronger and stronger and stronger, it becomes an over-desire. And it wages war against our souls. And Peter says about things like this, abstain. It's a call to self-control. We walk away from sinful desires. Why? Because they are deadly. You might want to underline or emphasize somehow they wage war against your soul. Some of you need to be reminded about this. Never forget that sin is your enemy. Never forget. And I think one of the reasons so many of us have trouble abstaining is because we don't think we're at war. We don't see how deadly our sinful desires are. And here's the thing. We, this is so countercultural. We live in a culture that disdains self-control, right? Self-control is strange, right? We're supposed to give in to our desires. We're supposed to be true to ourselves. That's what it means to be authentic, to have, you know, you know integrity in life. Be true to yourself. You do you. Biblically speaking, you doing you is often, most of the time, almost all of the time, a really bad idea. Can I just say that? How many of you know that? How many of you look at the person next to you and you say, I don't want them to just do the you? We know that about other people, right? Sometimes we need to be reminded about ourselves. Never forget that sin is the enemy. And, and Peter says we don't flirt with sin because sin, if you think about it in military terms, sin is always mounting a full-scale scale military campaign against your spiritual health and well-being. Sin regards your heart as a high-value target. But Peter says we must wage war against it. We can't treat it uh, temptation lightly because sin is coming to destroy us. And have you ever noticed that sin never sleeps? Have you ever noticed sin does not practice social distancing? We must fight it. And, and Peter is also telling us in this verse, don't miss this, we fight sin from our identity. And I get that from the first word of verse 11 where Peter calls us beloved. And that word beloved is going right back to what he's been telling us, what we saw last week, the verses before that. Peter is saying, he's reminding us that we are not earning the Father's love by how we live, that it's because of who we are, beloved by the Father, that we live this way, that we fight aggressively against sin. So that's the first command. It's the first way to live a beautiful life. You gotta get, got get rid of the ugly stuff that ruins our lives. Secondly, verse 12, Peter gives another command. He says, we must live honorably. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, this word conduct, if you haven't noticed yet, you can start paying attention. It's one of Peter's favorite words. 
He uses it about 13 times, I think, in First and Second Peter. And it's just a word for how you live. It could be translated live, but he calls it conduct. And then the word honorable is a word that could be translated beautiful. And it's part of where I get this idea of living a beautiful life. Uh, this particular Greek word is often translated attractive or beautiful. And I want you to think, this is the way that Peter wants to talk about our lifestyle as Christ followers, our exile lifestyle. He wants to talk about it in terms of beauty. How many of us think of the Christian life in terms of rules? Peter thinks of the Christian life in terms of beauty, of what's beautiful. He says that when people look at how we live, what they see ought to be beautiful. You think anybody says that about the way you live? when they see how you act. Now here's what I want to do to focus our thinking on this right now. What's the context? You can look at the verse and pay careful attention and maybe you'll get it. What's the the specific context for beautiful living in 1 Peter 2, verse 12? This is a key thing. We we could talk about what it means to live beautifully in all kinds of areas, in the way I, I do my marriage, in the way I raise my kids. I could have a beautiful life in terms of how I do political discourse. That would be nice, wouldn't it, if people adopted that one? There's all kinds of areas we could think about it, but Peter says, I want you to see it in one particular area. Did you notice it? He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that, purpose clause, when they speak against you as evildoers. There it is. Peter is saying, I want you to live honorably in the midst of slander when people speak evil of you. And it's not, did you notice this? It's not if they will. It's when. You might circle that word when. They're going to do it. It's going to happen. As exiles, we will face slander. You know, this is true for every Christian who's ever lived anywhere around the world for the last 2,000 years. We face slander. Sometimes, some cultures, some seasons more than others. But right now, I think you would agree with me In our culture, the slander and the hostility are growing. And if you haven't seen this happening, I would say you may not be paying attention. You may be living in denial because all around us, more and more and more people are saying louder and louder. I can't believe that you Christians, you people think that you have the truth. I can't believe that when you look around at this world in which we live with all kinds of good people having different kinds of faith, this pluralistic world that is ours that we live in in the 21st century, that you think there is only one God. I can't believe that you would say Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, the life. More and more people are saying that. More and more people are saying that people like you and me are backwards and bigoted. More and more people are actually saying that we are hateful. To believe what we believe. Not just wrong, but hateful. More and more people are saying we should be silenced. You see, we will be called evil for holding to biblical truth. We will be called evil for holding to biblical sexual ethics. You know, people are going to say, if you hold to what the Bible teaches about marriage and about sexuality, and about the sanctity of life, that you're backwards, that you're bigoted, that you're behind the times, that you're on the wrong side of history. They're going to say all these things. They're going to say, not only are you wrong, but you're evil. See, in our culture, it's kind of an interesting thing. 
even in my lifetime, we've gone from most people seeing Christian faith as a good thing, even if they're not Christians. Eh, it's good for people to go to church. I mean, I'm glad you believe that if it's good for you. People used to say that all the time. And, and we, then we moved into a, a season where people were more and more saying, you know, we need to tolerate everyone's beliefs, no matter what they believe, to a place now where our culture is saying, unless you agree with what is the dominant cultural belief, which is ironically often labeled as tolerance. Unless you agree with the tolerant position, then you should be silenced. and You should be marginalized because we don't tolerate intolerant people. And if you don't understand that's intellectually incoherent, you're not paying attention. Our tolerant culture is only tolerant of people who agree with them. And if we don't agree, they're not going to tolerate us and some of them are going to say, you must be marginalized. And some of them are going to say, you can't keep your job. And some of them are going to say, you, you, you shouldn't be able to believe what you believe. You must be canceled. But what I want you to see today more than that is that this is nothing new. This has happened since the beginning of Christianity. Peter is pointing out that slander was one of the first persecutions against the church. And these believers scattered across Asia Minor, they were up against immense scrutiny and criticism, against slander, all kinds of rumors, false accusations against them. Do you know what people used to say about Christians in the first century? Let me tell you a couple of things they used to say, and you're going to be surprised and you're going to laugh at some of them. But they were called, among other things, first one is they were called enemies of the state. Enemies of the state and of Caesar because they wouldn't participate in the civil religion of the Roman Empire. It's kind of an interesting thing. In many ways, the Roman Empire of the first century is more remarkably similar in culture to the 21st century American culture that we live in. It was very pluralistic, very tolerant. They, they didn't care what you believe. You could believe whatever you wanted as long as you participated in emperor worship and they didn't even care if you believed all they wanted you to do was just act it out to to be part of the broader culture uh, people saying caesar is lord and you take a pinch of incense and you burn it on an altar of incense as a sacrifice they didn't care if you believed it didn't matter to them if you believed it just say the words nobody believes it anyway <laughs> they didn't care they were tolerant and yet Christians would not submit to that. They could not. And so they weren't only called atheists or enemies of the state. They were also called atheists. That's the second thing they were called. Why? Because they wouldn't worship all the Roman gods. You don't believe in our gods? You're an atheist. Kind of funny for us to hear that and think about that, right? But that's how people in the culture thought of it. Here's a third thing, a third slander. You're going to laugh at this one, I'm going to tell you. They were called cannibals. Christian cannibalism. Have you ever heard about that? You say, what in the world are you talking about? Well, people from the outside heard about Christians on the inside in their services. They would talk about eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper. And, and we know that it's bread and wine. But people who probably knew that took that and used it as slander. They eat people. They were also, here's another one, they were also accused of incest. Why? Because you're supposed to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so people said these people commit incest. Christians were called, here's another one, haters of humanity. 
You hate everybody because they refused to go to the places where these, these idols and deities were worshipped. And they said, we will not, we cannot, we must not bow our knees to any of your gods. And so people said, you hate the rest of people. You say, why would they think that? Well, here's how pagans thought. Pagans believed that if people didn't worship their gods, then crops would fail and people would starve. P- pagans believed that if, if you didn't worship their gods, then your armies would be defeated. And your people would be enslaved. And so they saw the Christians who wouldn't worship their gods as damaging everybody else. You're hurting the economy. You're going to cause us to be taken away in slavery, to be defeated as a nation because they wouldn't go along. They wouldn't bow the knee to the gods of the age. There was a Roman historian named Suetonius who said that Christians were a class of people animated by a novel and dangerous superstition. And you need to pay attention. More and more people today in our broader culture are saying that our beliefs are dangerous. That they hurt people. Our beliefs, they say, actually kill people. This is being said. So slander is inevitable. But how do we respond? Well, Peter says we don't retaliate. We live honorably. We live beautifully. And we do that so that the culture who is slandering us doesn't have a leg to stand on so that their accusations don't actually hold water if they'll ever take time to investigate. So what do you do? When you're slandered, Peter says, you do good deeds. And and the word Peter uses for good could also be translated beautiful. We, We live a lifestyle that attracts people to the beauty of the gospel. Now, there, there are so many applications of, of what that might look like. Um, you know, when you go to a restaurant, one of them would be, you know, you're a generous person. You know, when you give a tip and you, you treat servers with dignity and respect. And by the way, let me put this real practically. If you're one of those people that doesn't like to tip well, then don't pray before your meal. Or at least if you pray, keep your eyes open and don't let them know you're praying. I'm telling you, I've heard this for years, and some of you who've worked in the service industry as waiters, waiters and waitresses almost universally say the worst tippers are Christians. Now, I don't know if that's actually true or not, but they probably remember the people who were being all pious and, you know, praying before their meal in front of everybody else, and then they were mean to the waitress, and they left a cheap tip. So just think about that. Think about how people perceive you. You you, you could talk about things like picking up the bill when you go with other people. Anybody else know people that get T-Rex disease when the bill gets laid on the table? You know that? They're going to wait for somebody else to take that bill. You're a generous person. You open your home to others. You care for the elderly and the sick. You, you minister to people who are orphans and refugees, to prisoners, to lonely people. You take time to listen to people that are hurting. Aren't there a lot of people hurting right now? You become a peacemaker at work. You just live a humble, joyful, gentle life. How about this? In your own home, you maintain a happy marriage. See, these are beautiful acts. And in our age of social media, we could talk about it in terms of what does it look like on our Facebook and Instagram and Twitter pages. I mean, be honest with yourself. Does anybody think you love Jesus because of what they see on your social media feed? Would anyone who looks at your Facebook, Instagram, Twitter page, whatever it is you use, think that you are applying 
what Peter is teaching here. Or maybe if you want to think of it this way, would you like it if Pastor Mike was your friend and saw everything you posted on your page? See, one of the things I want to say to you is is that this is why what we are doing as a church during this season of breakthrough this past year is so very vital. This is why we are always seeking opportunities to practically serve our neighbors because, as you've heard it said again and again, I hope you've memorized it, we believe good deeds lead to goodwill, which opens doors for the good news. This is why we do these things. This is why we've been painting benches in the city of Tracy along the streets, all those green benches that you see. It's why we've been delivering food and medical supplies throughout this pandemic season. It is why we have sewn thousands and thousands of masks. It is why we're holding right in this room another blood drive this week. It is why we have taken meals of appreciation to our hospital several times and to teachers in various schools several times. We've got another one on the schedule in about a week. This is the reason why last fall we paid off as a church family, Southwinds, the entire school lunch debt of the Tracy Unified School District. This is why we delivered refrigerators to a new home for elderly and disabled homeless women. It's also why I would encourage you to buy tickets for the upcoming Tracy Pregnancy Resource Center drive through banquet October 21st. Go online and you can get that taken care of. They can't have their normal banquet where they raise funds for their ministry. But if you buy a ticket, you can drive through and they'll give you a meal and you can support them in this way. I could keep going with this, but can you see how relevant these words are for today? See, right now, we have a great opportunity to put the gospel on display because we're living in a time where it seems like everyone wants to just spew and rant and rage. And while we need to be people who speak up for justice, do not forget good deeds. Do not forget that beautiful lives can have powerful impact on unbelievers. And you can live a beautiful life when you're slandered for your faith. Do you know that you don't have to defend every false accusation against you? Jesus didn't. Do you know that you don't have to complain every time you're attacked? Do you know that you don't have to have a pity party every time someone says something mean against you that instead of doing those things, you can just live a beautiful life? I think too many of us spend too much time complaining about our circumstances and too little time trying to bless our neighbors, our cities, and our nation. So let's live beautiful lives that glorify God. Amen? Amen. So we're going to be talking about the unfolding of this theme for the next few weeks. And here's the first example with the rest of our time today. Um, Peter, first example has to do with governing authorities. You can write this one down. We practice respect for governing authorities. That's the first way we try to live a beautiful life. Beginning in verse 13, here's what he says. Be subject for the Lord's sake. And this just means anyone who's in a rightful place of authority over us. For the Lord's sake means that we respond to every authority first and foremost, not to them, but to Jesus. I just want to ask, do you see your response to the government in terms, first of all, of your relationship with Jesus? Peter says, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. 
And he's telling us to do this even when the people who occupy the offices are fallible. He says that office is appointed by God. And we respect the office even when we don't agree with the person. Verse 15, he says, For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. So in other words, you submit not because they are better than you or because they own you. Your ultimate authority is only God. And you submit for his sake, for the Lord's sake. He continues, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And then verse 17, four commands, just boom, 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 boom. Honor everyone. Does our culture do this? I mean, we live in such a low honor culture. You know, if, we're our, if we wrote the command for our culture, it would be insult everyone, right? That's how people live. Honor everyone. It says, love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So the question really, I think, for most of us, and maybe you're kind of processing this right now, is how do you submit to governing authorities when there is so much about their policies and so much about their lives that you disagree with? Now, here's how you need to frame this. You need to know what Peter was writing out of the context he was writing from. You need to know that Peter wouldn't have proved of, of much of anything the governing authorities of his day did. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure if they had had free elections, which they didn't, that Peter wouldn't have voted for any of the Caesars. And if we think we have reason to complain about our leaders, Peter and those early believers so very much more. Now, I told you this a few weeks ago, but let me remind you, he wrote this a letter in the early 60s, and the emperor that he was speaking about, what was in his mind, was a guy named Nero. Everybody's probably heard of Nero. And we know historically that Nero was the third in a series of three awful emperors. Caligula was the first. Shortly after becoming Caesar, he had his mom and his brother killed to make sure they never challenged his right to the throne. Caligula openly committed incest with three of his sisters. Caligula frequently cross-dressed and went out in public. Caligula actually, he's crazy, okay, by the way, have you figured this out yet? <laughs> he, he, he actually installed his favorite horse, Incitatus, as a senator. And then he promoted the horse to consul. And I just have to ask, what did the horse ever done as senator to earn a promotion? And then, think about it, how in the world does a horse even vote in the Senate? All in favor? Aye. All opposed? Nay. Thank you very much. That was bad, right? Everybody say boo. Caligula once got mad at the weather, and so he, he declared war on Neptune, the god of the sea, and he ordered his soldiers to go out into the waves on the coast and beat the waves, beat the water with whips. You know, and then he, they were supposed to bring home seashells uh, to symbolize that he was taking plunder from Neptune's domain. This, he's just, this is just crazy, okay? Straight up, straight up crazy. He had all kinds of heads of statues of gods replaced with busts of his own head, and after, after he died, uh, Claudius ruled, and he might have been a little less crazy than Caligula, but he was every bit as cruel. And then Claudius handed his throne over to Nero. And by the way, when I say he handed over his throne, I mean that Nero's mom killed Claudius, 
uh, in his sleep so that her son Nero could replace him. And Nero turned out to be the worst of the three. Uh, Nero thought he was a great musician. And he made his whole court listen to him play. And that historian Suetonius I mentioned earlier, he said that Nero played for so long, women would fake going into labor so they could leave. I mean, sometimes I preach long sermons, but I have to tell you, no one to this point in my ministry has ever faked going into labor so they could leave the sermon, at least that I know of. He thought he was a great musician. Um, and, uh, you know, one time you, you've heard the story how he probably, historians mostly agree that he intentionally set fire to Rome. He, he wanted to do some urban renewal, put up some of his own buildings in a place where a lot of people lived, and so he just was going to burn them out. And, and while the fire was burning, he stood on his balcony watching it playing the harp like some kind of tragic poet. And then he blamed the whole thing on the Christians, said they did it. And he proceeded to have them rounded up and fed to the lions. He took Christians and impaled them on poles and covered them with tar and lit them on fire so that they were like great torches for his debauched parties. This is the emperor, friends, to whom Peter refers to when he says, submit to every human authority and honor the emperor. If you think we have it tough in 2020, Peter's writing in a far worse context. Tim Keller concludes, the increasingly secular West is only just beginning to experience the level of hostility that first century believers faced. And he says it's the the level of hostility that 21st century persecuted Christians are already facing every day. He says it is this type of state that Peter tells Christians they are to submit to. So how do we do this? Well, I want you to notice four things Peter tells us about our submission to rulers like this. He says, we do this always with honor and respect, respect and honor, even even when we don't agree with them. Even when we personally dislike them, we can respect the office they occupy as God-given and worthy of our respect. And that's what Peter does here. See, Peter was not part of some hashtag, not my emperor, Facebook group. He recognizes that God has established government authorities and is a gift to humanity and that the office should be respected. Second, we do this as free people. Again, it's not because they're superior to us. As a Christian, we are under the authority and control of only one, and that is God. But in that freedom, we are still God's servants, and God tells us as his servants who submit to government authorities for his glory and for the cause of Christ. He says in verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And then third, this also means in submitting to authority, we never disobey the commands of God. Now, you may notice it's kind of subtle, but Peter qualifies his command by saying we do this for the Lord's sake. And saying that tells us doing it for the Lord is that the the civil authority, the government authority is not over God. We submit to that authority for the Lord's sake under God. And so it's always qualified by that. There are certain lines that as Christians we can never and will never cross. See, if the government comes and one day tells us here at Southwoods that we cannot preach Jesus as the only way of salvation, then by God's grace, we're going to stand up and we're going to declare Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We will still do that. 
And we still must honor what God says about the sanctity of marriage in this community and about the sanctity of, of human life, regardless of what the government says. And there are certain kinds of marriages that we will not and cannot perform in this church. And we can never pay for abortions for our employees. It also means that we can never go along with any kind of systemic racial injustice or discrimination. We have to obey God rather than man if it comes to that. And then fourth, honoring emperors does not preclude speaking out against evil. Go to verse 17 and notice that honor the emperor is only one of four commands in that final verse. We honor everyone, first of all, and then we love the brotherhood, the people in the body of Christ. We fear God, and then he says, honor the emperor. And part of honoring everyone and loving brothers and sisters means we speak up when people are suffering. Furthermore, and we are so blessed in this, we live in a country where we get to vote, where we actually have a say. And Peter and those Christians in that, that, that time that he wrote, they didn't have that. And we get to choose our own emperors. And so we honor our leaders and we love one another. Uh, you can think of this last thing in, in, in this way. There are these two things you have to balance. Honor the emperor, love one another. I think Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. balanced this well in his letter from a Birmingham jail where he encouraged the people in his movement to obey every law they could and only disobey, disobey laws that were egregiously unjust. And even then to do that as peaceably as they could. He said one has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. Because we, we live for the Lord ultimately. He said laws that lift up the sanctity of human life are just. Laws that degrade it are unjust. And he went on to say that peaceful protests are designed to force conversations on those issues when society refuses to have them. Here's what I want you to see. Living with this tension of honoring the emperor and speaking up for others Living with this tension is going to make you odd. Because people want you to be on one side or the other. They want you to be pro-emperor or anti-emperor. But we need to be reminded that Christians are not captive to any emperor. And that means that we should honor them all and we should critique them all. I'll just put it this way. Christians today should not be owned by any political party. We should critique them all. You heard me say this before. We are not the tribe of the donkey or the elephant. We are the tribe of the lamb. Jesus is our Lord. Now, I want to be clear that I'm not saying that, that all voting choices are equal or that elections don't matter. I'm not saying that you shouldn't belong to a political party. But at our core, in our identity, we should stand above and apart from all of them. We should be willing to honor and praise rulers from both parties where we can and critique them where we must. Here's a real practical way of seeing if you've captured this balance. If you criticize the bad, do you also praise the good? Or if you praise the good, do you also criticize the bad? If you're someone who supports the current administration because it seemed like the best choice given the alternatives, do you also speak out clearly when it comes to the bad they do? Or... If you hate the current administration, do you also praise them for the good things that they do? And if you find yourself saying, well, they don't do anything good, you have a problem. 
we should always be able to find something. And I, I think if, if you master Peter's balance here, your Facebook page would have both praise for the good and criticism for the bad. And again, if you do what the Bible says in our culture, it will make you odd. You will stand apart. You will be set apart. And that's actually Peter's point. But if you do this, you will point people to Jesus. You will show them a beautiful life. You will point them to the one true king and to your true country that you're a citizen of. You know, friends, I want you to think about this. Life is too short and eternity is too long to make political identity my primary identity. We should all want our lives to point to Jesus. And that, I believe, is what it means to live a beautiful life. Would you bow your heads?